Well, good morning again as we continue to worship through our giving and I wrestle the page of my Bible and the air conditioner at the same time. Grab your Bibles. We're going to read through our text this morning. And at the conclusion of the reading of the text... um, Often we, we say it here, and it's become kind of a tradition, and, and language creates culture, we believe here, um, and we often say that this is the word of the Lord, and you say, thanks be to God. Um, and before we enter into this new series, I just, I just wanted to say that the words that we're hearing throughout this series are the words of God. This is God's word, but we're, hearing, we're going through a series, the Sermon on the Mount, the King's Speech, the greatest sermon ever preached. So what better time to say, thanks be to God for his word. So let's tune our, our hearts to that. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's a white paperback Bible in the pew back in front of you. Grab that, open up to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 23, reading through the end of the chapter and then through the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5. When you get to Matthew 4, 23, look at that and say, King of Kings. All right, follow along in scripture. Verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan, chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying these things. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We are glad that you're here today. Before we get going, just a few quick announcements. Um, This afternoon, we will be serving um, at the local bread shed. And so many of you signed up to be a part of that and to serve um, in that. There will be someone back there at the Welcome Center. Some of you may have to go um, right after this service to go out there. But if you want to come and didn't sign up, that begins at 1230 today. And what the Bread Shed is, is um, it's a local ministry that feeds people who are in need. So this afternoon, you can take your lunch hour and go down and serve people who more than likely wouldn't be able to eat lunch today apart from this ministry. And so it's a fantastic way for you to get involved in West Side, so we encourage you to go out and be a part of that. Also, um, this Wednesday at 6.30, for those of you that signed up for our baptism, um, we're going to have a baptism next Sunday. And so this Wednesday at 6.30, we'll be teaching our baptism class. And so if you signed up, you've got a phone call for me this week. And just another quick reminder for you, at 6.30 this Wednesday, we'll be having that baptism class. And then also, we're going to be getting, um, at the end of the month, what's known as the connection class here at Westside. And what the connection class is, is like we like to say that it allows you to go from being a Sunday attender to a family member. And so if you're wanting to come and be a part of the family here at Westside, we would love for you to come and sign up out there and you can be a part of that class. And then uh, lastly, if you are a member here at Westside, we're going to be having our business meeting August 23rd um, at 630, which is a Wednesday. And so this is your right responsibility to come, to be a part, to see where finances go, to see where we're going to be heading in the next year. And so it's just in a very, very exciting time for you to be a part of that. Now, with all of that out of the way, I don't know if you see this pulpit in front of me and this stage behind me, but I'm ready to get after it today. Um, we, I got to acknowledge some people. Um, we have a stage crew who comes. They were here all week late into the night for our electric mountains behind me for the Sermon on the Mount. And can we just show them some love and some honor? I mean, it's incredible. Um, the fact that uh, the amount of talent um, that we have here at Westside and... Um, 
One of the great joys and honors for me to be the pastor here is to see the body do what the body does. And for some reason, just for the grace of God, I get to get a microphone and stand up front to make it seem like I'm responsible for all of this. And there's been so many people do this. Um, Mr. Nicholas Bates made this custom pulpit for me. And um, I told him, I'm taking this to heaven with me, man. Like, this is just incredible. And so I am just so grateful and excited. Today we begin this journey um, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is known as the greatest sermon that has ever been preached because it was preached by God. (laughs) It was preached by God. And as I was trying to think and prepare how to introduce this series this week, um, today is an introduction to set us up for what's going to come. This series is going to take us all the way into Advent. Um, And so it's going to take us into December, and we're going to spend verse by verse going through this. And as I was praying and meditating how to describe the magnitude of what these words are, um, I was thinking about sort of like a, uh, an, an inaugural address that a president gives. Um, any newly elected president gives um, his first speech, and it's called an inaugural address, and it's his vision for what his presidency is going to look like. Um, Unfortunately, this day and age, we feel like it's a speech of lies because we feel like it's like empty promises that are to come. But as I researched and studied some of the most famous inaugural addresses, even if it's out of the top ten, out of the top five, or even the top three, there is only one man who holds two slots, and that is our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is known in history for giving the greatest inaugural addresses. The first one that he gave was on the brink of civil war. Um, Literally, the nation was split in two, and we were going to see one of the worst wars that would ever hit the soil of the United States. And he stood um, in immense power as the president at that time and gave a very rallying speech. But that's not his most famous The most famous one that he gave was when he was re-elected president. This was after the Civil War. Literally hundreds of thousands of men and women had died, and the country was split, the worst that that it had ever been divided. And Abraham Lincoln, we have a picture of what it looked like when he stood to give this speech. Literally, they didn't know if the country was going to be able to survive. It was left desolate. A population of the country had died. And he mounted that stage and gave a speech. What's funny about this speech is it was only 750 words long. I read it this weekend. I would encourage you to go home and read it as a part of American history. It's fantastic. It only took him seven minutes to deliver the speech And he ends the inaugural address with these words. With malice towards none and with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God has given us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work that we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds and to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and for his orphan and to do all which may achieve and cherish and just and lasting peace among ourselves 
and with all nations. I mean, just an epic speech to give at that time. And the reason why I say that is because that pairs in in comparison with an illustration as to when Jesus speaks these words. Because what an inaugural address is, it's a president casting the vision for the country and for the citizens as how they're supposed to live under that presidency. And what we have today with the king's speech and the Sermon on the Mount is just that. We have the king of kings and the Lord of lords speaking as to what it's like to live in the kingdom of God and to live under the good authority and kingship of Jesus Christ. Now, many of you may not have grown up in church, and maybe this is your first time. Where we're at today is in the Gospel of Matthew. And what a Gospel is, is it's in the New Testament. There are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what this is in Matthew's Gospel is literally almost like a biography of Jesus' life, of the years of which when he was king. And where we're at in this gospel is we have to do a little bit of work before we get into the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is already drawing great crowds. I always like to say that if you've ever seen a rapper win a Grammy, um, there's only one guy that sung the song, but when he wins the Grammy, there's like 37 guys that come up on stage and receive the award with him. This is where Jesus is at in his ministry. He's coming into towns and he's preaching And he's healing people, as Pastor Tyler read, that he was preaching the kingdom of God. And he's doing this. But do you know the very first words and the very first sermon that we know that Jesus preached? It was incredibly um, politically incorrect. (laughs) Because this is what it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then verse 23 says, And he went through all uh, about Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, and again, proclaiming the, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, before we get into this sermon, we have to understand this phrase. What is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? When you think about a kingdom, there also has to be a king. And this is the definition that we're going to work with through this series as to what is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is this. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God through the people of God. Very simply put, the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God through the people of God. Now, we as Christians in 2017, we live in a particular time because our king has come, correct? Jesus has come, and he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he's even so um, outlandish to say later on that the kingdom of God is in you, the followers of himself. But also at the same time, we live sort of in what theologians call the already and the not yet because our king has come But we also wait in great anticipation for the day in which the clouds split and the trumpet sounds and our king comes to claim authority over the whole earth. We live in the already and the not yet. 
And I think a good illustration of what um, the kingdom of God is, is if you ever come over to our house, uh, we have three kids, five and under, which is a statement and a prayer request all at the same time. Um, But if you ever come over to our house, our daughter, um, Andy Gray, she will want you to play Barbies with her. Or um, Frozen, if you will, right? With Elsa and everything like that. But here's what's interesting. If you ever play Barbies with Andy, um, I can guarantee you this. Um, You will not be the princess. (laughs) She will be the princess, okay? And you will be her subjects, all right? If you ever play school at our house, Roman will always be the teacher and you will be the student and you'll probably have to get sent to the principal's office at some point in time. And you say, why do you say that? Because in Andy Grace's world and in Roman's world, that's their little kingdom. And they're the king. And we as adults think that we are so different. But when you come into your home and when you look at your life and you look at your schedule and you look at your bank account, really in a way you're not saying this, but oftentimes we operate as if we are our own kings. But today we enter into a sermon where the king speaks with much authority and he says, this is what it's like to follow me. This is what it's like for the rule and reign of God to be seen and heard in 2017. Now, there's many ways that we can view the Sermon on the Mount. And listen, I have read commentary after commentary and studied all this week, and everybody disagrees and is confused and contradicts everybody else, okay? So this is oftentimes some of the um, ways that this is preached, which is not actually correct. The first way that the Sermon on the Mount is viewed is, is that it's almost like it's based upon morality or ethics, That Jesus is basically just kind of teaching morality and ethics. And hey, this is how you should be good. And this is the bad people. This is the good people over here. And then this is the bad people. So if you don't drink, cuss, or lie, or chew, or or date girls that do, then, then you'll be okay. And this is what the kingdom of God is like, right? But it's, yes, there is morality in there. And there is ethics in there. But that's not primarily what Jesus is teaching on. Another way that it's viewed is um, that it's legal, that it's law-based, that basically if you do this and you do this, then you can get into the kingdom of God. And listen to me, that is works-based righteousness, and we condemn that from this pulpit here. For the entrance into the kingdom of God is by grace. That Jesus has paved the way for that. Now, does our king require obedience from us? Absolutely. And we will get into that. And there will be very provocative things that Jesus says. That like if your eye causes you to sin, then you should gouge it out. And here's what people do. People go, well, I mean, he wasn't really that serious. I mean, he physically didn't mean to gouge out your eye. That's right. But Jesus may have some implications that if your job causes you to do some things that are contrary to the kingdom, then you need to find a new job. You see how offensive it is? We're like 10 minutes into the sermon, you're already awkward, and I love it. This is fantastic, right? But it's primarily not just something to obey, though there is obedience required. Another way that it is preached is that it's primarily political, right? 
that people just primarily say that this is how politics should run, this is how legislation should be, this is how it should all rise. And listen, I'm for those things. But if you read the Gospels, the disciples were constantly corrected and rebuked by Jesus. Because here's what they would always said, are you going to set up the kingdom here and now, bro? Are you going to be the king and overthrow the Roman rule and reign and set up shop here in here, here in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 1, literally when Jesus is ascending into the sky, they say, is this it? Are you going to set up the rule and reign? And he looks down at them and says, do you guys still not get it, right? Like, I've been with you for three years, man. My kingdom is not of this world. Though we will see that in this sermon that there are massive political implications. And in the age of fire and fury, as what was just said, Jesus says things like, turn the other cheek. Is it awkward yet in the room? You see where we're going in this thing. It's going to be good. And then another way that this is primarily taught is that it's a social thing, a social gospel. And this is very, very predominant. So, so this is the urge of, like, we go and we build wells. And this is where the um, phrase comes from the early church father who actually didn't say it. But it says, um, always preach the gospel, and when all else fails, use words. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life, okay? Because in order for us to teach the gospel, as Romans chapter 10 says, how can they hear if there is not a preacher? So yes, we give to the poor. Yes, we build homes. Yes, we give away money. But also at the same time, we also communicate with our mouth that there is a king and that there is a kingdom and that you have to repent and forsake the sin in your life and turn to Christ. There are social implications in the Sermon on the Mount, but that is not primarily what it's about. Primarily what the Sermon on the Mount is about is gospel. And we love that word here at Westside. But do you know what the word gospel actually means? Did you know the early Christians borrowed the word gospel? Gospel is actually a Greek term. The word gospel would mean that when a king went out to war and was coming back for victory, he would send a herald ahead of him to go into the town and announce the war has been won and our king is victorious. And the word gospel in the Greek literally means good news. And the herald would pronounce our king has won and there is good news news in our kingdom. And when the king would march back into town, the townspeople would meet him and throw a parade. Do you see now the implications of that? What is the good news? The good news is this. Sin has been defeated. Death is dead. And as Colossians chapter 1 says, that our king now rules over the entire world. World. This sermon primarily is a pronouncement of good news that our king has come. So listen, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know what your past is like. But if we were to hook up your mind to the projector here today and maybe thumb through some of your thoughts, would any of you like to stay in the room while we, while, while we went through that? Right? Probably not. But the good news is this. 
that God has come and he is for you. Do you understand how outlandish that is? Now, 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 don't deflect. Don't nudge your husband right now and go, see what he's saying? You hear what he's talking about? No, no, no. I'm talking about you. And all of the darkness that lies in our hearts, all of the failures in the past, all of the broken marriages, all of the prodigal children, all of the failures that mount up, our king has come. And he's made an announcement that I am here and that I am for you. This, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And so what we are going to see primarily today in these verses is we're going to see the king and what he is like. And we're going to see his followers and what they are like. The first thing that we see is this, the king, the king. And what we see is this, that our king speaks with authority. Authority. And and, and what's good about this is you actually kind of have to fast forward to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, we see the crowd's response to what Jesus has just said. And, And here's what they say. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. You see, here's here's what Matthew's doing. We have to do like Matthew is kind of like a really, really good movie. Right, And so what any good movie does is they give you a foreshadow in the beginning of the movie. And actually at the end of the movie, you walk out of the theater with your mind blown because you were like, that was the opening scene of the movie. But it was actually the end of the movie, right? And what Matthew is doing when he says that Jesus speaks not as the scribes, Matthew is a gospel that was written primarily to first century Jews, right? And so Judaism started with Abraham, right? You remember in Sunday school when you ate the sugar-free Kool-Aid and dry wafer crackers and had the felt board, right? Right? Father Abraham had many sons. You remember that guy, right? And so primarily Israel is birthed through this guy. But later on, later on the book of Exodus opens with the birth of Charlton Heston. I mean Moses. I mean Moses, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? And Moses is just a paramount figure in the Old Testament. He writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Moses and Jesus have a lot of similarities when Matthew opens his gospel. Moses was born and Egypt was slaughtering all of the firstborn male Jews. Remember when Jesus was born, what Herod did? Herod went all throughout Israel and was slaughtering the firstborn Jews. Then we see Moses lead the people of Israel out of slavery, right? You remember when Charlton Heston lifted up the staff and the Red Sea parted, right? It's a fantastic movie, right? We see Jesus get baptized into the Jordan. And Jesus leads the greater exodus because the people of Israel were in slavery. And Jesus leads the people of God out of the slavery of sin. And, and, and we see this foreshadowing all through the New Testament. And in Exodus chapter 19, 
we see these words. On the third moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, here it is, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And then here it is. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Now, look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 in your Bible. Have your eyes on Scripture. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the what? The mountain. Oh, man, this is good. This is good. Moses is going up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God, the law in which they should live. But Moses is not speaking upon his own authority. Moses is receiving this law from God. But now we have Jesus the greater Moses, the new king. And he ascends the top of this mountain. And he does not speak as one who has to get something from God, but he is literally speaking as God. And the people are amazed that he speaks this way. Because you know what Jewish rabbis did in the first century? The Jewish rabbis always quoted another rabbi. So they would say, Rabbi Heshel says this, and this is how I interpret this law. Or this rabbi says this, or Moses said this, and Jesus has the audacity and the gall later on in the Sermon on the Mount to say, Moses told you this, but I speak upon my own authority and I tell you this. No one had ever done that. He speaks with his own authority. And that word authority, do you know where we get our English word from? Authority, author, author. We're literally hearing from the God that wrote the book. Um, I'll never forget many years ago, the first time that I saw my wife, Courtney. Um, we were over, I, we, she lives in Donovan, and I was in Donovan. It was a Friday night, and it was a basketball, because that's Hoosierville over there. So it's like basketball, woo, right? And they get out a week for deer season. Like, I tell people that across the country, and they're like, they get out a week of school for deer season? I'm like, yeah, man, welcome to southeast Missouri, you know? And so I remember sitting in the stands, and I remember seeing a group of girls walk in, and I remember one girl particular that walked in. I'm a hopeless romantic. I still remember what she was wearing, which some of you may say that's creepy, but I say creeping's caring, okay, right? And so, like, I was like, hey, girl, hi, you know what I mean? And so um, I saw her, and, and, and she sat on the opposite side of the gym there, and I was over there, and I was kind of eyeballing. I was asking people around um, who that was, and I got kind of really bad news. They were like, that's Courtney Jackson. Her dad's uh, the Ripley County coroner. And I was like, oh, God, he signs death certificates. Like, oh, no, this is not good news for me, you know. And so I did what any brave guy, any sly guy does, right? Um, I sent somebody else to go over and talk to her. You know what I mean? Um, I sent Phyllis Guthrie, a lady there, and I said, hey, Phyllis, go over there and um, tell her that a guy over there in the stands is, um, you know, wanting to say hi. And so I kind of did the Jim Carrey Dumb and Dumber. I was going to hang out in the stands, put out the vibe, right? Why? And so Phyllis went over there, kind of pointed my way, and I was like trying to look, you know, you know, all good and all this stuff. And I sent her over there to speak with Courtney, and, I, and I'll never forget that moment. But you know the moment that trumps that is the first conversation that I had directly with Courtney. I'll never forget that time. You see, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they had to have a mediator. 
They had to have someone, Moses, mediated between God and the people. For this God was so holy and he was so righteous. And the people of Israel were constantly fumbling and worshiping other idols. That God chose Moses out of God's own grace, not out of Moses' goodness, to be the mediator to cross the gym to talk to the other people. But here, now, within this authority, we now speak to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords directly. And listen to me, this is good news today. I don't know who you are, and I don't know what your last name is, and I don't know what you've done, but listen to me, because the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, we have access to God directly. That First Timothy says that there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Listen, you ain't got to come to me, and I ain't, ain't got to give you five Hail Marys in order to talk to Jesus. You can talk to Jesus on your own by the authority and the grace of God that has been given to us. This is good news for us today. But before we enter into this, he speaks with authority. And listen to me. We're repainting the picture of Jesus because in our culture now, Jesus is like a lost member of the Beach Boys. He's like blonde hair, blue eyed, like peace and love, man, right? You know, he speaks with authority. This is the king. And listen, my prayer is this for us as a church in Westside. Before we enter into these words, we have to reckon ourselves to this truth today. That will I submit myself to the king's authority? Listen, you don't negotiate with the king. You don't give a king ultimatives. You don't tell a king, hey, Jesus, love you, man. The grace thing, love the grace thing, right? Grace upon grace upon grace. I am all about that. Give me some grace in my life. But you know what? He didn't just come in grace. He came full of grace and truth. And so we submit every aspect and every area of our life to Jesus Christ. So before we enter into this 14-week study, You have to ask yourself, am I going to submit to these words? Listen, I've been reading ahead. I've been reading this over and over and over. And there are things in this sermon that I wish he had not said for two reasons. Because number one, it affects my life. It affects every area of my life. And then number two, I have to get up here and preach it to you so you get mad at me. You know what I'm saying? Right? But he speaks with authority. But... But it's not just authority. Like, here's what I love about Christianity, and I'll go toe-to-toe with you on this. There is no other religion in the world that has a Savior like Christ. Because all other... like, Like, Muhammad did not come and say, I am the way to God, right? Muhammad came and said, there's many ways to God. Jesus came and said, I am God. Buddha said, I don't know what Buddha said. Buddha said something. He was just a fat guy who loved food, okay, right? But Buddha was like, hey, do this and do this, and maybe this is a way to God. Jesus said, I am God. But what all other religions have and all other ancient Middle Eastern religions have is a God that is all-powerful but not approachable. And what we see here is that Jesus doesn't just speak with authority. But our king is also approachable. You can come to him. 
And Matthew does that to us again. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. That phrase, sat down, is very important. That was um, the ancient way to teach which is actually still carried in today. So whenever the Pope speaks, the Pope speaks, the, the, uh, the, the Latin phrase is ex cathedra, that he speaks from the chair, that a judge in a courthouse, when, whenever he comes in, it's, shall you all rise, and then he sits down. Sitting down is the giving of the law. So Jesus would have sat down and taught as a rabbi, but look at the next phrase, this is so beautiful. He sat down and his disciples came to him. They gathered around him. Now again, Matthew is using a play on words. Because again, in Exodus chapter 19, when Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel are terrified. They even say at one point, do not let God directly speak to us, lest we die. So Moses, you go up on the mountain, you can FaceTime God and do that kind of cool thing, and then come down and then give us the law, because we are terrified, because there it's with thunder, and it's with lightning, and the whole mountain was shaking. And then here's what it says in Exodus. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. They stood away. And now our king has come. And yes, he speaks with authority. But this king, he's approachable. You can come to him. And better than that, he comes to you with this immense authority and power. Listen, I don't know what your picture of God is today. But one of the things that I hate the most, and if I hear it again, I'm going to lay hands on someone in the name of Jesus. But if somebody refers to God as the big man upstairs, get out of here with that stuff, man. Jesus demolished that view of God. Our God is now approachable. He's now come. Um, I got to see this sort of happen this week. Uh, uh, the congressman, Jason Smith, I don't know if you saw this, but he came uh, to Popper Bluff. And Jason Smith is a congressman, and he's over agricultural. He did all of these things, and he toured a bunch of farms here this week. And um, Parker Williams works at Cane Creek Sod. He's a board member. And so we went out there. I got to meet uh, Jason Smith and everything. And there was all this hoopla, like caravans pulled up. And, oh, man, it's a congressman. You know, it was cool. And so we were all hanging out over there. And actually, me and John G were over there looking, like, super sketchy. I think, like, his security was looking at me and John G. Like, we got to watch those guys over there, you know. But we were there. And so Jason Smith starts talking. And he starts talking about his legislation. And he's doing what he does. You know, he's a politician doing all that stuff. And Parker and Lindsay had their daughter Charlotte there. And um, if you know anything about trying to hold a two-year-old and keeping them still, that's impossible. That just can't happen. And so Parker sat Charlotte down for a minute, and Jason Smith, the congressman, you know, speaking about his legislation and doing all this type of stuff. And before Parker and Lindsay knew it, Charlotte shot right out of the crowd and walked right up to Jason Smith in the middle of his speech 
And she had like a pair of safety glasses, and she handed them, and, and he was great. He was a smooth guy. He bent down, and he talked to her and gave her a little gift and stuff, and I think he did it because the camera was around. But anyway, I'm not saying that's mad. You know what I'm saying? But, and when, when that happened, I walked away and thought, that's what God wants us to do to him. Charlotte's just a little baby. She didn't know about the authority. This is a congressman. And then I thought about when Jesus said, bring these children to me. Let them have access to me. For such is the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus teaches us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches us to pray, our Father, our Abba, that literally we have access and can approach him. And as Hebrews says, we don't have to approach timidly. We don't have to approach being scared. We can approach just like that little girl approached someone in that great position of immense power and walk boldly right up and just ask for things. That God literally wants you approach him like a child approaches a father or someone of immense power. And we go in in the name, boldly in the name of Jesus Christ, and we ask God. Listen to me. I came to declare good news today that you have access to the creator of the universe. Everybody's in awe about this eclipse. And I love it. That's awesome. That's cool. But I'm in awe of the God who made this eclipse. And don't let this event be wasted on some overpriced glasses that you bought or something like that, okay? Be in awe of that moment when you watch that eclipse and you see that moon and you see that universe do what it does, that our God spoke it into existence. And he upholds it with his word and his power. But don't just be in awe of that. Be in awe that you can approach that God and that you can speak to him. This is our king. We see that he is one who speaks with authority and somebody who is approachable. But now what we also see is not just the king, but we see the king's followers. We see the king's subjects. And Mark does a very play on words here. That's why we have to spend time in these first two verses before we go anywhere else in this. Because look at what's around. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, under circle crowds in your Bible or your neighbor's Bible. That's okay. They'll appreciate that. In the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Do you see the difference? Circle disciples. Circle crowds. Draw an arrow to both of them in your Bible, and then write in the margin of your Bible this sentence. Which one am I? Which one am I? Because we see all the time through the Gospels that there's great crowds around. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus does the exact opposite of what like any preacher would ever do. If there's great crowds, preachers are amped, we're pumped. And then, then we would say something like, uh, invite all your friends next Sunday and we'll triple our attendance. This is incredible. But when Jesus sees crowds around, he almost gets Evoked, And he says things like, um, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be my disciple. Hey, and you know what? Unless you actually forsake your life and carry a cross and die to yourself daily, yep, can't be my disciple. 
He deters them away. It's, it, it's insane. And all through the Sermon on the Mount, we see this. Now, primarily, what the Sermon on the Mount is, is two disciples. The crowds are overhearing it. The crowds are overhearing it, but Jesus is teaching his disciples, this is what it looks like to follow me. And then later on, we see many, many things and analogies that Jesus uses between the difference of someone who's in the crowd and someone who's a disciple. Do you know what the word disciple actually means in the Greek? It simply means a learner. Learner of the way. That you would learn, that you would follow. But following doesn't necessarily mean intimacy. Um, many of you will know this lady, Cheryl Crow, the Grammy Award winner. Um, where's Cheryl Crow from? Kennett, Missouri, buddy. You pull in and it says hometown of Cheryl Crow and methamphetamines. No, I don't say that. But it just says, it just says hometown of Cheryl Crow. Right? It just all says, yeah, if you're from here, I'm, sp- I'm preaching, okay? That's true, right? But I grew up in Kennett. And so Cheryl Crow, she comes down all the time. The Crow family's around. They are, they are very approachable. Um, many Saturdays, my family, we would go and eat at Bill's Barbecue. And Cheryl would walk in with her family. And, and it's her hometown. She's always quoted in magazines saying, I love going to my hometown because there I'm just Cheryl Crow. I'm just a girl that grew up here. Um, she always comes in and does sort of like a Christmas cantata at the Presbyterian Church there in town. We, uh, we bumped into her multiple times at Walmart, and she just hangs out. It's just Cheryl Crow. Nobody even takes pictures of her, like selfies or anything like that. She's just around, and it's her hometown. And, like, I've been in the same room. I've shaken her hand. I mean, it's hometown girl. So, listen, I could go around. I could be like, I mean, I know Cheryl Crow. I mean, I know, I'm, I'm from Kenneth, hometown of Cheryl. I, I know Cheryl Crow, right? But, I mean, I think if you bumped into Cheryl Crow and was like, hey, do you know Jason Jordan? She would be like, no, no, I don't. Listen, I've, I've been around, I've been in the same room, I've been close. I don't know Cheryl Crow. Proximity to Jesus does not mean intimacy with Jesus. You understand what I'm saying by that? Now listen, here's where I'm primarily provoked. I'm primarily, primarily provoked for us as a church and us here in what is Butler County, which is like right there in the Bible Belt. Because around here, proximity to Jesus or proximity to a church or having a grandmother who prayed for me and loved me or having family members that are Christians somehow negates in people's minds that they themselves are not Christians. I mean, listen, in Popper Bluff, what do we have here? We have Mexican restaurants, car dealerships, and churches, right? It's unbelievable. What construction is that? Probably a car lot. What construction is that? It's a Mexican restaurant, right? Everybody has a debate of which one has the best guacamole and the best cheese sauce and all that type of stuff, right? Like primarily all of these things are around. And some of us, like, like, like listen, here, here's a demographic of Westside. Westside, there, there's an awesome nucleus of just 
people who serve, who've gone through the connection class, who serve, who are in there bouncing your babies. They're not bouncing, not shaking your babies. They love your babies. But like there's people serving. There's people doing all kinds of things. There's people here all throughout the week. There's people in community groups praying. There's people serving. There's people doing all of that. And then there's another group of people who come. They kind of dabble. They kind of like schedule the events around some stuff. And then there's people who come. Blows my mind. People who come here every week who you hear me call you an idiot and you're like, I love this. I'm coming back next week. This is phenomenal. This is incredible. But but listen, do you know what primarily concerns me and what keeps me up at night? Is that you come and you think because you're in proximity and you come and because you had a grandma who loved Jesus and you came in here today and you checked in on Facebook that you were at church and there's no desire and love for Christ. There's no love for his word. There's no desire for delightful obedience. There's no submission to the king. And you're categorizing your life. And listen, I have to tell you, you are a crowd member. You are not a disciple. And my concern and my prayer is that through this, that you would bow the knee to the Christ and that you would become a disciple. What does a disciple look like? Primarily, first and foremost, a disciple is someone who worships Christ. Listen, make no mistake about it. The front of the pulpit says this. It's all about Jesus. We don't think Jesus was just a nice guy. We don't think Jesus was just a teacher. We don't think Jesus sits on a shelf among all other religions. We believe that Jesus Christ is God, second person of the Trinity, who rules and reigns the universe and one day will come back and claim authority over heaven and earth. That's who we believe Jesus is. And to worship Jesus means everything in your life revolves around him. That means that when I'm sitting down balancing my checkbook, I don't balance it with a calculator, I balance it with a cross. That means when I look at someone who I'm dating, it's not about how good they look or how hot they are. Because what I always say is, man, I hear it all the time. Man, Jason, she's hot. She's good looking. And my response is, so's hell. Hell's real hot, bro. But we calculate that about Christ. Is this God honoring? A disciple's whole life orients around Christ. But it's not just that. A disciple is someone who also walks with Jesus. It's a daily relationship. And I've used this example all the time. If I got up here and said, uh, I had a good week this week. Um, I didn't talk to my wife, Courtney, at all. But on Thursday, we had a really good quiet time. And um, I did all the talking. I didn't let her talk at all or or, or tell me how to do anything. And so, um, and then we went on. I think our marriage is great. You would go, you're psycho, right? And yet, so many people come in here on Sunday. And they think they walk with Jesus. And this is the only time you ever even hear the Bible. This is the only time that you bow your head and you don't pray, you listen to the person praying. A disciple is someone who walks, who's continually doing things in your life. It is a relationship. If I were to sit down and have a cup of coffee with you today, 
and say, what is Jesus doing in your life? Where is he leading you? Where is he taking you? And then I had a cup of coffee with you six months later and said, what's Jesus doing in your life? Where is he taking you? That better not be the same place. Because a disciple is someone who walks. But then lastly this, a disciple is someone who works for Christ. That literally we live with delightful obedience. And I say delightful obedience because, listen, I know the Bible Belt and I know what you grew up hearing. Because I, I, I got to pray, I got to do this Bible reading thing, I got to mark off the list. And today, this year, I'm reading through the Bible in a year. And you check off that box and you drive to work. And here's what you think. You think because you checked off the box and read your Bible that God loves you more. The most game-changing moment in my life when I was in St. Louis, Missouri as a pastor. And I had a dear friend who discipled me. He was an older gentleman. He was married. He was just teaching me what it was to be a man, teaching me what it was to be a husband, to be in the ministry. And I'll never forget what he said one day at Starbucks on Tesson Ferry, Highway 21 up there in St. Louis, right off 270. He looked across and he said, you think God loves you more because we came in here and studied the Bible today? You think reading the Bible's for God? It's for you. It's for the relationship. It's a delightful obedience. It's something that we love to do. Listen, Christians have calloused knees and bruised and calloused hands because we work for Christ. We serve. We go out and we do these things. And listen, it's not for you. It's not for the recognition. It's for the expansion of the kingdom of God. I mean, look at a guy like Paul in the New Testament. Look at Peter in the New Testament. I never once heard those guys talk about retirement. I knew a preacher that I had a conversation with and he said, man, I got six more weeks and I'm retiring. I don't even know. Me and my wife, we might not even join a church. And it's like, like I had righteous anger. Like I wanted to throw over the table right in front of him. Retire? Not join a church? What do you mean? This is something that we continually always do. This is a picture of discipleship. But here's the primary principle that I want you to understand because I know some of you are going to do this and it's going to be exhausting. And many of you are in here today and you're exhausted about the Christian life because here's what you think it is. You think it's adding something. Great, another sermon series. More stuff I got to do. More things. And that's not the gospel. Listen, kingdom life is about submission, not addition. This this series is not something that you add to your life. This is not something that I'm wanting you to go, yeah, on Tuesdays and Thursdays after soccer practice, after this, after family night, after this, then Thursdays or Fridays are kingdom days. And those are the days that you give to the... It's an everyday rhythm and routine of life. And listen to me, this is why this is going to be primarily provocative for us. Because my prayer is for us as a church and for those of you that are followers of Christ is that your whole life would orient itself around Jesus, that you would submit to the king. As the band comes up and leads us in a time of response, I was provoked as I was reading and studying this week about the magnitude of this sermon. 
Here's what's so interesting. You can be a non-Christian in here, right? Thanks for coming and hanging out. Um, But one thing that everybody agrees, even scholars and non-Christians alike, this is one of the greatest pieces of literature that we have in all the world. It's one of the oldest. And do you know what's crazy? The impact from this sermon literally takes a 12 of misfit idiots. I mean, these guys are dropping the ball 24-7. And then it goes to 200. And then it goes to 250. And one guy by the name of Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist out of the University of Washington. Listen, this is great. He's not even a Christian. And he studied the rise of Christianity. It's a book I would highly recommend. It's called The Rise of Christianity. And he studies and shows how from a Jewish homeless rabbi, this one movement literally in 300 years converts and becomes the majority religion in Rome. Listen, nothing in the history of society and and, and the study of humanity has ever happened like this. And how he outlines the book is this. In the Roman Empire, under the rule and reign of Caesar, we've never seen anybody rule the world like the Roman government. And then a homeless rabbi comes along and he speaks and it's God in the flesh and everybody changes their life. John Stott says to summarize the Sermon on the Mount is countercultural. You live the opposite of the world. And this is what Rodney Stark said. Abortion in the Roman Empire was rampant. But the Christians didn't abort their babies. And history records that they would walk the streets and pick up babies that were in the gutter and take them home. And Rome said they're taking care of our own Roman citizens better than us. Whenever the the infocide of female babies was taking place, the Christians did not kill their own babies and always rescued them. The pagans practiced premarital sex and sexual immorality all through the empire, but this small group of bands insisted on biblical chastity. Divorce was widespread, but the Christians frowned on divorce and they had high honor in regards to marriage. Pagans fled the cities in fear when plagues and epidemics happened. But Christians stayed in the cities and took care of the people who were dying. And they themselves died while taking care of everyone else. And when I read that this week in my office, I prayed and I begged God that that would happen in Popper Bluff. What would it look like if it happened here, started here at Westside Church of God, and there's no more drug dealers? You can't buy drugs anymore because they're getting saved because they're coming in submission to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's no more call of the wild because we've invited strippers to come in and worship with us, and they love Jesus now, and we give them jobs, and there's a different way of life. What would it look like if in your home today we submitted to the king and we said we will live as an anomaly here because the kingdom of God is at hand and this king is here. So what's the big idea? The big idea is this. The Sermon on the Mount is the king's invitation to kingdom life. My question to you is this. Do you accept it? Do we bow the knee today?
because we come to the king's table but oh this king did not rule with a sword he did not rule with an iron fist this king died for himself and you come and you see the body, the bread that took the sword the blood that was spilled this is your entrance today do you accept it? Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus. Please, Jesus, be the king in this place today. May lives be changed. Oh God, before we get into judge not, least ye be judged, before we get into anything practical, may we first bow our knee and understand that the king is speaking and that this, this is authority pray this in the resurrected name in the king's name Jesus Christ amen would you stand and come forward and partake in